0: You're about to listen to an episode of the primate cast Origins. In a moment, distinguished primate behavioral ecologist Dr. John Mitani on his life among the apes. Evolution,
1: communication, cognition,
0: conservation, behavior,
1: Primatology. primatology, primatology, typically primates.
0: Become the monkey. Well, hello everyone, and once again, glad to have you back in the audience for this episode of the Primate Cast Origins, where we hear from experts in the field of primatology and beyond how they got started and became some of the most influential folks around. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh from Kyoto University's Wildlife Research Center, and this episode is taken from our International Primatology Lecture Series Past, Present, and Future Perspectives of the Field. This is the brainchild of Dr. Michael Huffman, and like our normal programming, is brought to you by SciCasp. The main goal of the lecture series is to share the origin stories of experienced practitioners in primatology and related fields. To do that, Mike Huffman has invited a revolving door of renowned scientists to join us on the program and share their own stories with us. The Primate Cast Origins is our way of sharing those stories right here on the podcast. Now, unlike our normal interview format, These lectures are being done as part of our SciCasp Seminar in Science Communication, which is aimed at graduate students here in the Primatology and Wildlife Science program at Kyoto University. So what you're going to hear is a lecture that was recorded in Zoom and generally includes slides, so there may be references to visual aids that are not available in audio-only format. But for anyone wishing to see the speakers presenting their talks, we invite you to check those out on the SciCasp TV YouTube channel. Now, the speaker you'll hear in this installment of the Primate Cast Origins is Dr. John Mitani. John is a primate behavioral ecologist and professor emeritus in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Michigan. He's conducted research on apes of all kinds for over 40 years. In the lecture, John talks about growing up as an academic studying behavior during some quote-unquote heady times in the 1970s, with a Nobel Prize having been awarded... Uh, to ethologists, and with the emergence of E.O. Wilson's sociobiology. Throughout the lecture, it's just so clear how he integrates theory and methods to test new hypotheses, and it gives the impression of a real scientific mind at work. And so much of that work has actually found its way into the textbooks. So you just get this sense that John was in on so many core discoveries in animal behavior and primatological science. Now, his first ever published paper about territoriality is now a citation classic in primatology and was among the first works in the field to use cost benefit analysis and model thinking to understand primate social behavior. But he also talks about other major discoveries um, in his lecture, like how ape vocalizations play a role in territorial defense and spacing, how male orangutans can have hugely different mating strategies that coincide with huge differences in body size and other physical features how chimpanzee social behavior and alliances are determined by genetic relationships among them, and a whole bunch more. Although it looks so well put together as far as academic careers go, John also highlights his many twists and turns as a scientist, and how serendipity and luck were critical to his success, as were the various mentors he had along the way. His number one rule is that a priori hypotheses and theory are great, but You have to be opportunistic and jump on promising new observations when they arise. And it's so refreshing to see how explicitly he both identifies and acknowledges his mentors and their importance to him right here in the lecture, saying that if you find good ones, lean on them. John concludes his story with updates from Kibale Forest National Park in Uganda, where he did the bulk of his work. The Ngogo chimpanzee community there holds a special place in field primatology and great ape research, for the scientists who have studied there, but also because it was always the largest chimpanzee community on record, and the chimpanzees there seem to enjoy a longevity not seen at other sites. But a lot has changed in recent years. John tells a chilling tale about how the large community broke into two, punctuated by some ongoing carnage that's become synonymous with chimpanzee intergroup aggression. This reminds us that social dynamics change, and that what we thought to be true, even through some of the longest-running field studies out there, can in the end turn out to be ephemeral. I think this hits home for us in a way that only tears in the social fabric of our closest living evolutionary relatives can. In the end, John notes that we are all more successful as a collective, just as were his Ngogo chimpanzees. I think his life and career are a testament to those words. So please enjoy this lecture by Dr. John Mitani, starting as always with a wonderful introduction from Dr. Michael Huffman.
1: John is, is had, had a, a very um, rich and long career in, in in primatology. He's as 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 is mentioned on the poster. He studied almost, if not all of the the, the great apes and lesser apes, um, and he's covered an amazing variety of different topics. Um, those of you who are just starting out in the field probably know him best for his work with chimpanzees and Kibale in the Ngogo site, but he's um, done a lot of impressive work with with Gibbon vocalization with orangutans as well as gorillas and and you know the whole the whole gambit. So besides just a, a great ape expert, he's a great ape guy, one of the very sociable, kind, empathetic. Um, primatologist that I know in in the field, and it's it's a great pleasure to have this opportunity to welcome him to present some of his experiences to all of you um, listeners. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to John.
2: Uh, Well, thank you for um, that kind introduction and giving me this opportunity to speak to you tonight. Um, I'm especially pleased to have this opportunity since I have long standing ties, not only to Japan, but to Japan primatology as well. I find myself at the end of a very long career now. And, And as I look back on the past 40 or so years, the one thing that I keep on coming back to is how incredibly lucky I've been. I've been lucky because I've had a unique opportunity to study the five animals depicted on the screen. These, of course, are our closest living relatives, the apes. There have been many twists and turns along the way, but if there's one recurrent theme, it's that very little of what I'm about to tell you was ever planned, because my story emphasizes the role that serendipity plays in science. My story begins as all stories do in youth. As I was growing up, I had no particular interest in animals or their study or their behavior. But everything changed one day when I was a senior in high school. This book arrived in the mail. My parents had purchased it for my younger brother. He's an architect now. I got to the book first. I stole it, and it remains on my bookshelf to this day. The book was called The Marvels of Animal Behavior and was published by the National Geographic Society. In keeping with the magazine, the book was just full of these wonderful pictures of exotic animals in equally exotic locales. I opened up the book and was immediately entranced. As an added bonus, the chapters were written by a veritable who's who's list in the study of animal behavior. Folks like Dick Alexander, Jack Bradbury, Steve Emlin, Gordon Oriens, and my personal hero, George Shaller. The chapter that intrigued me the most though was the final one, a chapter written by Irv DeVore on the I filed away what I could learn from the book and I went to college, the University of California, Berkeley where Sherry Washburn, one of the founding fathers of the modern study of primatology in America was teaching at the time. I took a few classes and was immediately hooked. Now, I was incredibly fortunate to go to school during the 1970s, because these were very heady times in the study of animal behavior. In 1973, Carl von Frisch, Conrad Lorenz, And Nico Tinbergen were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for their seminal studies in ethology. Two years later, in 1975, Ed Wilson published Sociobiology. Now, it was in Sociobiology that Wilson resurrected and renewed interest in Bill Hamilton's long forgotten theory of kin selection. And when I heard about this idea for the very first time, I started to wonder whether it would be possible to use some newly developed techniques designed to assay genetic variation in natural populations and combine that with a behavioral study, a study of something like a baboon to investigate whether who's related to whom actually affects who does what with him. We took some of those ideas to graduate school, where I was very fortunate to work under the supervision of Peter Rodman. Peter had just completed one of the very first successful field studies of orangutans in the wild, and being trained at Harvard and by DeVore and Wilson, he was thoroughly enmeshed in this emerging field of sociobiology. My plans for graduate study were to evolve and change, and they were to change quite quickly. I remember sitting in class one day during my very first year, listening to Peter lecture about the conditions which would make it both easy and difficult for a group of primates to defend a territory. I took the ideas that Peter presented that day and with his help and guidance, turned them into my first paper. It was in this paper that we proposed an index of defendability, a simple ratio of the average distance a group of primates traversed on any given day, divided by a measure of the size of their range. We reason that in situations when this index was large and exceeded one, it would be fairly easy for a group of primates to move from one end of their territory to the other and defend it against others. In contrast, when that index was small and less than one, the cost of defense would be prohibitive. Now this was a pre-internet age at a time when information wasn't instantly available at your fingertips. So what did I do? I did what you had to do back in the day. I actually went to the library, I dug into the literature, I tried to discover what I could learn about the ranging habits of primates as it was then documented. And when we put everything together, we found that observations generally conformed to prediction. Now, looking back on that paper, I think it's fair to say that the paper helped introduce cost-benefit thinking into the study of primate behavior because it was one of the very first papers to explicitly acknowledge and recognize that there are costs as well as benefits to behavior. The paper also got me to start thinking about how one actually goes about doing comparative studies of primate behavior. And that was a theme to emerge in some of my later work where I investigated variation in the number of males in primate groups, the role that male-male competition plays in the evolution of sexual dimorphism and size, and another study looking at the evolution of non-maternal caretaking in primates. As I continued, In graduate school, my plans for a PhD thesis were changing and they took a very sharp turn at the end of my first year. Peter came up to me one day and asked whether I wanted to accompany him to Borneo the next year. He had a grant to study the socioecology of primates at the time and he needed people, he needed students to man his field site. Of course said yes. And with that, I became a primate field worker beginning with an utterly forgettable and failed attempt to study the behavior and locomotion of long-tailed macaques. Peter actually sent me back a second time, and that, that study or that time in the field was equally unsuccessful. So unsuccessful that I barely remember what happened. I came back during my third year of graduate school to regroup. And perhaps because of that paper we had just published on territoriality and primates, my thoughts turned to this issue. And I ended up developing a PhD project investigating territoriality in primates. I selected for study two animals that I had become familiar with in my travels in Borneo, socially monogamous gibbons and polygynous leaf monkeys. Those gibbons live in fairly small territories. They use them more or less exclusively. They overlap minimally with their neighbors. By contrast, leaf monkeys live in equally small territories, but ones that overlap quite extensively with their neighbors. Using some some results from a fabulous study that had just been completed by Rich Danaza on the rare and endangered Klaus Gibbons, as well as some theoretical ideas that had just been developed by Steve Emlin and Lou Oring, I hypothesized that the Gibbons were defending space, while leaf monkeys were engaging in a form of female mate defense. Now, as an undergraduate, I would become quite fascinated and enamored of the work of Nico Tinbergen who had pioneered the use of field experiments to examine functional questions about animal behavior. Because of that, I decided to implement a series of experimental playbacks using recorded calls to simulate encounters between gibbons and leaf monkeys at various parts of their territories. The technique had been implemented successfully for the very first time in a wild primate by Peter Wasser, in a study of mangabees in Uganda. Peter Wasser was to become the very important mentor to me. He lent me some very expensive uh, playback equipment and was later to serve on my PhD committee. Now in my playback work with the Gibbons, I was able to show that both their vocal and their spatial responses waned as one moved out from the center of their territory to their boundary, and into their neighbor's range. Results consistent with the hypothesis that gibbons were in fact defending space per se. While those were quite satisfying results. My work with the leaf monkeys wasn't progressing nearly as well. In fact, I was failing and failing quite dismally. My problem was that I couldn't habituate the animals to my presence. They were shy, they were secretive. They lived at fairly low densities. And whenever we went out to look for them, I'd rarely find them. On those few occasions that I did, I would only gain fleeting glimpses of them as they ran away quite quickly in the treetops. Intriguingly though, whenever I went out to look for the leaf monkeys and failed to find them, I would often run into something else, orangutans. And when I would run into one orangutan, I would run into more than one orangutan. They would often be together. Now I knew from reading the literature, as well as Peter Rodman's own studies of these very same animals at this very same site, that this wasn't supposed to be happening. These were um, supposed to be solitary creatures. After about... Nine months of banging my head against the wall, trying to um, habituate the leaf monkeys to my presence. I realized that it would be far more interesting, if not profitable, to switch my attention to the orangutans to figure out what they were doing. When I did so, I made a renewed commitment to field work. I doubled down. I spent as much time as I possibly could with the orangutans. And when I did so, I was able to document the alternative mating tactics employed by male orangutans. Now, casual inspection of these animals will instantly reveal that there are two types or morphs of male orangutans. There are those that are large, as depicted on the left, individuals who possess secondary sexual characteristics, such as the feety cheek flanges on that colored male. Alternatively, there are smaller males that are about half the size as the large individuals. Now, during these early days of studies, it was quite natural to assume that this difference in size simply represented a difference in development. The large individuals were adults and the small individuals had not yet matured they were sub-adults. We now know, of course, that some of those small guys never grow up. Irrespective of whether the small male orangutans were old or young, they are always at a competitive disadvantage due to their small size. And in order to compensate and to reduce the levels of competition that they face from the larger males, those small males adopt a distinctly different alternative mating tactic, one in which they first find a female, they stay with them for as long as possible, and here's where things get a bit nasty, they forcibly and repeatedly mate females. The pattern shown by those small males differs quite dramatically from the pattern shown by the larger males. The theme of male sexual coercion was to appear later in my life when I began teaching at the University of Michigan. There, the very first class that I taught was a team-taught seminar on the topic with my friend and colleague, Barb Smuts. Barb later used some of the things that we learned from that class to write a very important review uh, on um, this topic of male aggression and sexual coercion in females in primates and other mammals. My playback work with the Gibbons was proceeding along Going along quite nicely, so much so that I decided to implement the playback technique to investigate the long calls emitted by male orangutans. These are some of the most distinctive sounds heard in the Bornean rainforest. And here, my playback results indicated that males seem to use this as a spacing mechanism, where low ranking males generally avoided the calls emitted by the highest ranking male in the area. I could find no evidence that males use these calls to attract females to them. Now, one's research interests often change as unexpected findings occur. And given my work on orangutan mating behavior, my thoughts soon turned to the uh, puzzle created by given monogamy. Now, monogamy mammals is both theoretically rare And uh, uh, theoretically unexpected and empirically rare, found in only about 10% of all mammalian species. And the problem has always been why do males accept these relationships? Here again, I decided to implement a playback technique, the playback technique to investigate this issue by simulating encounters between solitary females and mated pairs. When I did so, I discovered that. Mated females essentially impose these relationships on males by displaying sex-specific aggression toward other females. With the passage of time, that finding takes on renewed significance insofar as it bears on a current controversy over the factors that affect the evolution of social monogamy in mammals. The old given result fits quite nicely with Dieter Lucas and Tim Cluttenbrock's hypothesis that social monogamy evolves in situations where single males can't defend multiple females. This because of high levels of female competition, female intolerance, creating low female densities. Now, throughout my graduate career, I was using the vocal signals produced by primates as a tool to simulate interactions between them and ask them questions about why are they doing the kinds of things that they were doing. And the process is impossible not to become interested in the sounds themselves. It was for this reason that during postdoctoral research, I decided to conduct studies of animal vocal communication. Here I was incredibly lucky to do that work working in the lab of Peter Marler. Peter was one of the true giants in the study of animal behavior. He was a recognized leader in the study of animal vocal behavior, and coincidentally, he happened to be the one who put together that book that originally caught my interest and attracted me to the field. During postdoctoral research, I spent most of my time trying to unravel um, the songs sung by male gibbons, first showing how male gibbons use these as a species discrimination mechanism. Most of my time, however, in the Marlowe lab, I was seeking answers to two questions. How male song is structured acoustically, and why we're male singing? What is the function of song? With regard to the first issue, male gimmons engage in prolonged singing performances. During the pre-dawn hours, those singing performances last about 40 minutes in length. And male gibbons typically start those performances by emitting a series of fairly low amplitude, short songs that consist nothing more than these frequency upsweeps. As those singing performances continue, those songs get louder, they get longer, and they get more complex in terms of their constituent notes. With regard to the issue of song function, my observations showed that males frequently countersing with their neighbors, an observation consistent with the territorial spacing function. Additional observations indicated that song complexity increases during vocal interactions with neighbors, with males singing faster, louder, and longer, and with more elaborate songs than when singing alone. I conducted a series of experimental playbacks to further probe the function of song. And when I did so, I discovered that males responded more strongly to elaborate songs, sung fast and loud, compared to simple songs, sung slower and at relatively low amplitude. Taken together, those results suggested that increasing song complexity represents a series of graded signals. With long, complex songs, more effective territorial stimuli than short, simple songs. I concluded my time in the Marler lab with this investig- with an investigation of the phonology of song. I began that study by decomposing the songs sung by gibbons into their constituent note types. I then created a mind-numbing series of analyses that if I think back now still hurt today, where I tried to determine whether there were specific rules that Gibbons use in stringing those note types together to construct their songs. Once I was able to do so, I violated those rules, constructing artificial rearranged songs as depicted on the right. I played those songs back to the Gibbons compared to the responses to responses that I got when I played back normal songs, they responded differentially suggesting that there was in fact an underlying phonology to Gibbons singing behavior. Gibbons appear to string those songs together in the very same manner or in a similar manner that we do when we string together meaningless phonemes into meaningful words. I conducted my postdoctoral research on gibbons at the newly established Ponti Research Station in Gunung National Park in Indonesia. I found this place in the summer of 1984 with Reese Bowen and Mark Layton. And while I was there, I also attempted to start a parallel study of orangutans that work has been continued to this day, quite ably and quite nicely by Cheryl Knott and colleagues. But my work with gibbons and orangutans at Gunung Pollen was cut short, and it was cut short because I was going to take a sharp turn in my research. Toward the end of the time, my time in the Marlow lab, I was feeling as if I needed a new challenge. Peter Marler was to issue of that challenge by nudging me to the study of chimpanzees. As things turn out, he spent some time early in his career studying chimpanzees at Gombe with Jane Goodall. Once I took up that challenge, Sada Nishida was there to facilitate my change and my switch to chimpanzees. I had met Toshi earlier on a trip to Japan and at a conference in America. And when I was starting to contemplate this move to chimps, I wrote to him and I asked him whether it would be possible to study the chimpanzees at the Mali Mountains, where he'd been working for many years. Toshi agreed, and I morphed into a chimpanzee field researcher. For my first study, I investigated an enduring problem in the study of primate and animal local communication whether learning affects the vocal acquisition process. Here, I focused on the long distance pant hoots emitted by male chimpanzees, and I asked whether there was dialectal variation. This was an indirect way to get at the question of vocal learning insofar as local dialects are one correlate of the vocal learning process as we understand it in humans and male songbirds. We compare the calls produced by males at the two well-known study sites of Gombe and Mahali. These sites, of course, are located within close geographic proximity to each other along the lake shore of, uh, along the eastern lake shore of Lake Tanganyika. And in our acoustic analyses, we're able to document some subtle differences in the buildup and climax phase of calls with males at Mahali emitting buildups at faster rates and climax elements at higher frequencies than calls uttered by the Gombe males, results consistent with the hypothesis that there are dialects. Now, in this paper, we follow the, a lead, first um, proposed by Bill McGrew and Caroline Tutin we try to be careful to consider and eliminate other factors, other factors that may have accounted for some of the acoustic differences that we had encountered or that we had uncovered. This came to be known as the method of exclusion, a method that was to be adopted in subsequent studies of chimpanzee cultural variation. My first foray into the lives of um, chimpanzees was a real eye-opening experience. Up until that time, I had only I had only been working with socially monogamous Gibbons and for the most part, um, solitary orangutans, where the demographic situation obviously affected and constrained the form, the frequency, and the patterns of social interactions that could take place. But here, for the very first time, I was actually working with truly social primates. It became instantly clear that social factors affected virtually all aspects of chimpanzee life and behavior. I was quick to recognize that dominance-rank relationships affected call production, this in a paper with Nishida. I may have been especially sensitized or sensitive to the fact that social factors would affect vocal behavior because while I was a postdoc in the Marler lab, I had a good friend and colleague, Marcel Guigier, who was conducting an influential study on the alarm calling behavior of male chickens. Working together with Steve Karakashian and Peter Marler, Marcel documented the so-called audience effect in chickens whereby male chickens modulated the production of their alarm calls in the presence and absence of different conspecifics. Remembering that um, study, I asked whether something similar might be going on in chimps. And here again, working along with Ashida, we're able to show that there was an audience effect in chimps. Chimps, male chimpanzees actually modulate the production of their alarm calls, increasing the number of calls they give In certain social situations, specifically when their close friends and allies are in the party that day. They seem to use these calls as a means to keep in contact with others, but not with everybody, only specific individuals, only the kinds of individuals or the particular individuals that they like and associate with frequently. I was later to merge these two seemingly disparate lines of research vocal plasticity as suggested by the Dialect study, and the effect of social factors on vocal production in this paper. For years, I was conducting acoustic analyses of chimpanzee calls, often focusing on the long distance panhoot. And in those papers and analyses, we typically only examine single calls emitted by solitary individuals. I knew, however, that males often call together in choruses with others. For the most part, we set those calls aside because spectrographically, they're quite messy. You had males calling on top of each other. It was difficult to figure out who's who in those spectrograms. But one day in my lab, I made a fortuitous observation in examining some uh, spectrograms of chorus calls I started to notice that the climax portion of those calls during choruses looked awfully similar to each other. Armed with that observation, I then tasked Julie Gross-Lewis the arduous job of analyzing those chorus calls. And when she did so, she discovered that male chimpanzees produced acoustically similar calls when chorusing together but they didn't do so all the time. Again, they selectively did so when calling with their friends, not with others. The process seems to be similar to the process of vocal accommodation as we understand it in humans. And I think this is something that most people can understand and identify and and, and, agree and understand. Vocal accommodation is this process whereby you start to adopt the different speech mannerisms, customs, habit, even words of different people when you move to a different area. It's seen as a way to fit in. I'd recruited Dick Byrne to the dialect study, as Dick had um, been to Mahali before and made some recordings. Well, in Scotland to obtain those recordings, And ran into Bill McGrew. I have this vague recollection of weaving down the streets of St. Andrews late one night with Bill, turning to him and asking him whether the time is right for another meeting of great ape researchers. This to recreate a meeting that had been held in Austria nearly 20 years before. That suggestion led to the publication of this book. This book, in turn, the result of this meeting of grade eight researchers in Mexico. And here's where my life takes another serendipitous turn. David Watts happened to be at that meeting. Up until that time, David had been studying the behavior of mountain gorillas at Kurosuke Research Center, along with Diane Fossey and others. David, however, was beginning to wonder whether he wanted to start studying something else, something like chokes. And in fact, the very next summer, he was planning to go to this place called Ngogo in Kibali National Park to conduct a pilot study. When I learned of David's plans, I immediately asked him if I could tag along. And I had several reasons for doing so. First reason was that I had no plans to return to Mahali the following year when I was looking for something to do. Secondly. This was Kibali. It was a legendary field site. It was a place that I always wanted to see. It had been established over 20 years ago by Tom Struisaker, who I knew, as Tom was one of Peter Mahler's first graduate students. So I already felt as if I was part of the Kibali family. I went the next summer, and as an added bonus, Tom showed up. I spent some of the best days I've ever spent in the field uh, with Tom walking in the N'Gogo forest day in, day out, trying to learn everything I could from him about N'Gogo, Kibali, and Uganda. Before Tom showed up, um, I had already realized that N'Gogo was a very special place because there were chimps and they were everywhere. This was because the community of chimps at Ngogo is by far the largest that has been described anywhere on the African continent. Now this was only supposed to be a visit. It was really a vacation. I had every intention of returning to Mahali the very next year to resume my studies of the uh, Mahali chimps with Nishida We had developed a very close friendship and collaboration. But with each and every passing day during that first summer at Ngogo, the lure being created by the Ngogo chimps was just too much to resist. At the end of the summer, I sat down with David. I asked asked him whether or what he thought about uh, starting a joint collaboration and collaborative study of Ngogo chimps. He agreed and the rest is history has been a tremendously satisfying and productive collaboration. I began my studies on the N'Gogo chimpanzees where I had left off at the home with studies of their vocal behavior. But right from the start, I knew that this might be the place where I could fulfill that original dream I had in graduate school, where I could do a study of kin selection and primate behavior. So right from the very beginning, I set out to try to obtain genetic data from the Ngogo chimpanzees. After several failed attempts, we were finally able to coax mitochondrial DNA out of some hair samples. And that led to the publication of a few papers. The Results in these papers, however, were far from satisfying. They were far from satisfying because at the end of the day, they're only based on a single gene, mitochondrial DNA. And that gave us only an imprecise understanding of who was actually related to him. I was only able to fill that dream I had in graduate school after I was able to recruit a brilliant young graduate student in the form of Kevin Klangergraber. For his PhD thesis, Kevin conducted and completed this heroic study where he typed an astronomical, astounding number of genetic loci from a large sample of chimpanzees. Those genetic data gave us a fairly good understanding of who is actually related to him. We combined Kevin's data with my behavioral observations and were able to show that kinship mattered. Males who were related to each other at the level of maternal half-sives cooperate and affiliate in each of these six different uh, content, behavioral contexts far more frequently than do unrelated individuals. I was able to extend that result by showing that those same maternal houses form long lasting and enduring social bonds. More recently, one of my final graduate students, Aunt Aaron Sandell, has shown that those bonds that are uh, developed, in, uh, that are formed or established and maintained in adulthood actually a, begin in adolescence when males become independent from their mothers for the first time. And in some other work, my final graduate student, Retina Reddy, now at Harvard studying uh, bonobos, has been able to show, as others have in the past, that sibling bonds persist following maternal loss, as older siblings adopt and start to care for their younger siblings following maternal death. Our studies in N'Gogo chimpanzees have provided insights into other aspects of their behavior, including their hunting. As is the case at other sites, chimpanzees at N'Gogo hunt vertebrate prey. And like at other sites, their favorite prey are red colobus monkeys. The unusual thing about hunting at N'Gogo, however, is that chimpanzees hunt red colobus monkeys with very high success and proficiency. Those hunting success rates are so high that it has led to a precipitous drop in the red colobus prey population over a 20 or so year period. There's been an 80 to 90% drop in the number of red colobus at Ngogo due to chimp hunting. And as the chimps have decimated the population of red colobus at Ngogo, they've started to hunt other animals, other animals that they barely touched 20 years ago. We use some of our early observations at hunts to address an important theoretical problem about why male chimpanzees share meat and do so readily with others. Here, we are able to validate an old hypothesis originally proposed by Nishida who suggested that male chimpanzees use meat as a political tool to develop and maintain social relationships and bonds with others? Our studies on the Ngogo chimpanzees might be best known for the insights that have been made into the uh, question of chim- or uh, topic of chimpanzee territoriality, and this brings me full circle back to that very first paper I published on primate territoriality. As is the case with many animals, chimps are territorial. Interactions between members of different groups are typically hostile. Boundary patrol behavior is an integral part of uh, chimpanzee territoriality. And what happens here is quite interesting. These Patrols involve instances where groups of chimps will gather together and move in quite directed fashion to the boundary of their territory oftentimes entering the territory of their neighbors. On some very rare occasions, male chimpanzees or chimpanzees, patrollers will encounter their neighbors and launch lethal coalitionary attacks on them. For years, our understanding of why chimps kill their neighbors proved elusive. But after about 15 years of a study, we're able to provide an answer validating a hypothesis, first proposed by Richard Rangham, who suggested that chimpanzees kill their neighbors in an effort to seek dominance over them. Over the course of about 10 years, the Ngogo chimpanzees killed several members in a community living to the northeast of their territory. And after having done so, and reducing the coalitionary strength of their neighbors to such an extent, The Ngogo chimpanzees were simply able to move in to that that new new territory, usurp a large portion of the territory previously occupied by their neighbors. We started to use the long-term data we've collected on the Ngogo chimpanzees to address some long-standing issues about what makes us human. Here, we oftentimes think of ourselves as being a bit unusual. Insofar as we display a slow life history, we grow up very slowly, we start reproducing relatively late in life, and some of us, if we're lucky, we live a very long time. Our studies on the Gogo chimpanzees now, however, show that chimpanzees there survive at very high rates across the entire lifetime, at much higher rates than do chimpanzees elsewhere. In fact, the pattern of survivorship by the the chimpanzees at N'Gogo resembles the pattern shown by humans living in some natural fertility populations much more closely than does survivorship in other chimpanzee groups. So here we've been able to reduce the gap between them and us in one important respect. High survivorship among the N'Gogo chimpanzees leads to a situation where chimps there live a lot longer than chimps elsewhere. And this has paved the way for some collaborative work that we've been recently doing with Emery Thompson, Tony Goldberg and others investigating the aging process. Here we've been able to show that fecal parasite loads increase as females age. We have some suggestive evidence from two independent studies that the viral loads of male chimpanzees increase as they age, and other work shows that the gut microbes of chimpanzees change as they age, with young infant chimpanzees showing high gut microbial diversity, a pattern that's directly opposite from the pattern shown by humans. We have yet to publish our most surprising finding about the aging process in the Ngogo chimpanzees. For now, we have solid demographic and hormonal data that indicates some female chimps at Ngogo experience menopause. Here we've known for a very long time that many female chimps at Ngogo survive into their 40s, with some living well beyond the time they give birth for the final time. If we compute Levitus and Lackey's post-reproductive representation statistic, we find that to be about 0.2. What this means is that a female Chimpanzee Anangogo actually survives to adulthood. She's expected to spend about a fifth or about 20% of her entire life in a post-reproductive state. Now, while these data are interesting, I doubt that they're gonna convince anybody that these females are truly menopausal but we have corroborating hormonal data for those same post-reproductive females, show high levels of gonadotropins and corresponding low levels of ovarian hormones. And if anybody doubts the age of some of these chimpanzees that we have at uh, Ngogo, we now have converging lines of evidence suggesting that these are really, really, really old chimps. Um, For the past few years, we've been able, mostly through, through sheer luck, able to recover the carcasses of some chimps who died. And some of those older chimps are showing clear signs of not only osteoarthritis, but importantly, osteoporosis. The defining feature of the N'Gogo chimpanzees has always been its size. The community was large. It's always been large. It was large at the start. But during the past decade, the community has gotten even bigger. That growth has been fueled in part by a secular increase in the fruit supply. But with growth comes dissolution. About three years ago, the community finally fission with total spatial and social segregation between members of these two groups. The split was a process. It played out over the course of about three years where there's a gradual social and spatial separation between members living in these two groups. It's quite interesting to watch, if not unbelievable to see that some of these individuals, especially these males who lived their lives together, grew up together, were friends, um, all of a sudden turn on each other and start behaving aggressively. For during that three-year period, not only did they start to separate spatially and socially, but they also started to have encounters that were quite aggressive. We mark the split by a particular event, a particular event after which there is no no further interchange, social interchange between members of these two groups, and that occurred when members of the smaller group killed a young male from the larger group. As if to place a stamp on matters, the very next year, members of the smaller group Mm. turned around and killed another older adult male depicted here in that larger group. Lest you think that things have settled down and everything's fine, the saga continues. And that smaller group is still on a rampage. Just within the past year, members of that smaller community have killed four chimpanzees living in the larger community one of whom was an infant born to this female uh, last September. Now, what, if anything, have I learned from all this? And is is there anything that I might be able to pass on to some of the younger members in the audience today? I began this discussion by noting how serendipity has played a large role in my life. It'd be great to sit here and be able to tell you that everything that I just discussed in the past few minutes was planned and was planned meticulously right from the start and that everything worked out. You'll now know, of course, that that would just be a lie. We're taught as scientists to um, use current theory, develop hypotheses based on that theory, and then go out and test those hypotheses by conducting experiments or collecting observations. But more often than not, I think you're going to find that Um, things aren't going to work out, no matter how good the plan is, how meticulous the study was at the beginning. It's because of this that I've always told my students and anybody else who comes out and go-go that the first rule of a good field worker is that you have to be opportunistic. You have to be flexible because things aren't always going to work out. I urge people to be flexible and simply just keep your eyes open and follow the leads that your animals provide. Second, some might view my um, career as a bit odd. I started out as an experimentalist and I morphed into a simple observer of the natural world. That was a choice and a choice that I made quite happily because there's nothing that gives me greater pleasure these days than going out and just spending long periods of time watching the chimps, sitting back and letting them tell me their stories. Um, The payoffs are far and few between because these are long lived animals who give up the secrets of their lives to us as human observers only very slowly. But when a discovery is made, there's be nothing more satisfying. So maybe a second piece of advice I'd give to you would to be patient like me and maybe do something that I think far too many in this field are getting away from. Go to the field, spend time with your animals, watch them, watch them closely. If you do, I can guarantee you that your animals will inform as well as surprise and delight. I also started off by indicating how lucky I've been. I'm quite fond of saying something that's absolutely true. I've been to places and seen and done things that most people can only dream about. Along the way, I've had the great and good fortune to have some wonderful mentors and great and uh, good friends and colleagues with whom to work. And along the way, I've been quite generously supported by many private and public funding agencies. I realize that everybody's different, mentors, colleagues are not always the same, but if you find good ones, I suggest you lean on them because this is a lot more fun doing together with others and it is Owen. Finally, while I've been lucky, I'd argue that you're lucky too. You're lucky because you belong to this small collective, the small collective of primatologists who have been given these wonderful opportunities to study an amazing group of animals, our closest living relatives of non-human primates. I've conducted research on the cooperative behavior of male chimpanzees for over 20 years now. And something that's obvious was quite clear right from the start. The collective is much stronger if we all work together than if we work alone and as individuals. Given that, I'd urge you to do your research. I know you're gonna do it well, but as you do so, use every opportunity to do something to pay back, contribute to the collective, not only to ensure that primates will be conserved for future generations, but also to ensure that others will be given the same wonderful opportunities that we've been given to work with these amazing animals. With that, I'll conclude. But before I do, I want to thank each and every one of you tonight for giving me this opportunity to speak to you and indulging this old man as I've taken the stroll down memory
0: lane. You've been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to all things primatology and wildlife science, to the conservation of species, and to the sharing of scientific knowledge. The podcast is hosted and produced by Andrew McIntosh, with artwork from Chris Martin and music from Andre Gonsalves. It is brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at Kyoto University's Center for the Evolutionary Origins of Human Behavior. Visit us online at theprimatecast.com and follow our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter at The Drop us a line anytime to say hello, to tell us what you think about the show, and to suggest future guests for the podcast.